0: again. principles of environmental toxicology today's lecture teratogenesis mutagenesis and carcinogenesis is perhaps one of the more complex uh, biological biophysical uh, discussions that we will have this semester what we've tried to do in this particular segment of the course is take all of those toxic endpoints that relate to genetic mutations to uh, things uh, involving the molecules of life and put them together so not because it's seamless, uh, but because the endpoints have similarities and there is a potential for crossover in terms of a toxicant-induced disruption in the molecules of life. What differentiates several of the endpoints that we'll be discussing today is that in fact some of those endpoints, the toxicosis if you will, is inheritable from parent to child and this has to do with changes or mutations in the genetic code. This differentiates it from the more acute or chronic sorts of toxicoses that we were talking about before. Our learning objectives here today, what we'll try to have you do is define... Be able to define teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis, uh, long words all, but uh, each with their own independent uh, and s- uh, specific meaning. We're going to have you describe the relevance of replication, transcription, and translation, how these terms, how these processes, which you've in- introduced several times in the course, and we've introduced them at a fairly low level. Again, this is not a uh, molecular biology course. This is not a genetics course. We're trying to give you sufficient background that you can understand through the tools of biology what you need to know to talk about toxicology, the interface of chemistry and biology. We'll describe the relevance of these terms as it relates to teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. I'm going to have you try to summarize the mechanism of action of these three toxic endpoints, teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis, and we'll try to discuss some examples of known teratogens, mutagens, and carcinogens. Uh, You'll do this not only through some of the lecture materials that we'll discuss here this morning, but we will also have you... You do it through your readings, primarily the readings in the used textbook. Well, where do we start? Well, as I introduced, these three interactions, these three endpoints, have to do with the molecules of life. What we find is that chemically reactive toxicants can react or modify these other chemicals, these molecules, DNA and RNA. This can have the end point of leading to these heritable changes in the offspring or changes in cellular growth and development, leading to perhaps uncontrolled cellular growth and development, such as carcinogenesis. What we found uh, in previous discussions is that replication, uh, this process in the nucleus, perpetuates genetic information, and so disruptions at that point in replication in terms of cell division uh, can, in fact, lead to these heritable changes. Another aspect in terms of the disposition of the molecules of life is transcription and translation. These two tools are used to express genetic information, primarily in terms of the chemicals and primarily proteins that are involved in many enzymatic and antibody functions which we'll discuss. Now this is a cartoon that we've tried to reduce a more complex uh, uh, diagrammatic illustration of the cell in terms of the three sequential processes of replication, transcription, and translation. Uh, replication happening within the nucleus, transcription, translation happening uh, in terms of the ribosomes and in the cytosol, uh, tri- trying to, in the cytoplasm, uh, forming uh, proteins. Now, in terms of these proteins and why these mutations or these changes or disruptions in replication, uh, transcription, and translation might have outcome, it has much to do not only uh, with uh, whether or not the conceptus uh, can actually survive, but also whether or not there is a significant mutation leading to some functional change in perhaps proteins. Reviewing once again protein functions, they can function as antibodies where they recognize molecules of invading organisms, as receptors, where they uh, essentially uh, recognize uh, various uh, chemicals or other hormones and actually inform the cell or transmit information. Uh, Proteins can function as enzymes, where they assemble or digest. We've seen uh, that they can be neurotransmitters or hormones or enzymes. They can actually uh, cascade responses. We can also have proteins that provide structural uh, channels and pores. Uh, If, uh, for example, uh, different proteins uh, are used in assembling different macrostructures in the body, we can then have a genetic display of teratogenesis or a malformation of the conceptus. These three endpoints that we're going to discuss today, teratogenesis is defined as the origin or production of a malformed fetus or offspring, whereas mutagenesis is defined as production of a mutation. This is a chemical mutation or a change in the genetic code of an organism. Now, we can have uh, uh, low-level mutagenesis that can be repaired. Uh, Just like we can have low-level carcinogenesis or the generation of neoplastic cells, uh, these new cells that are managed by our immune system, mutations can be managed by repair enzymes. And so this sequence of advanced mutagenesis and carcinogenesis primarily uh, can be a part of normal physiological function at low levels. One might also argue from an evolutionary point of view that mutagenesis makes us who we are, that successful mutations perhaps lead to uh, genetic anomalies like uh, the world's fastest human, the ability to sprint very fast, run very fast, uh, people that have uh, specific uh, individual skills. If you look out in the natural kingdom in terms of selection of species, mutation might also have been a strong part of this in terms of selective adaptation to an individual or species environment. Carcinogenesis is best defined as cancer formation, and and this includes uh, uh, carcinoma and malignant neoplasms. Uh, What we will do as a part of this lecture is go through the lexicon of carcinogenesis, give you some terminology to differentiate the various uh, terms, clinical terms, and also biological terms that are associated with the onset and development of cancer. Now we've talked about the impact of uh, chemicals with the molecules of life. Recall that in DNA uh, replication that we ha- have a molecule, and this molecule, once we kind of figured it out, once we decoded uh, this coding action of DNA, uh, we can see that in fact it implies replication. We find, in terms of our analysis of molecular biology, that this occurs via multiple uh, enzyme interactions. So there's a certain orchestration, a concert symphony, if you will, of these molecules of life. The helix unravels, the strands part, and DNA replicates. DNA replication is important in mitosis uh, and meiosis, uh, and those who remember their high school and college biology will discuss this a little bit. Um, Unfortunately, as we find out, this is not always a perfect process. Uh, There are repair enzymes to sense and detect and repair uh, uh, problems associated uh, with uh, uh, genes or gene disruption in the DNA molecule. Now, in replication, we find that the, uh, this process is what duplicates uh, cell DNA. In mitosis, it's a somatic cell uh, process, one somatic cell. It has two N chromosomes, and we'll detail those on kerotypes here in a moment. It divides to create two new cells with two N chromosomes, so this is a duplication, okay? And in humans that n is equal to 23 so 2n is equal to 46 chromosomes now in terms of this replication the number quality and quantity of the chromosomes uh, per cell is conserved and so we can find that uh, some disruption in the number the quality or the quantity of those chromosomes can actually be a mutagenic effect what we find is that uh, the triggers for mitosis is uh, v- a combination of receptors and proteins that can be external signals, they can be hormones, they can be internal factors or growth factors uh, that essentially initiate this cascade of response. In your biology books, you've probably seen micrographs of mitosis in cells uh, uh, duplicating each other. In meiosis, uh, this is a process of sexual reproduction. These are with germ cells that divide into gametes. Uh, This is responsible for the genetic variation because we have two cell divisions. We end up with four daughter cells. We start off with uh, diploids and end up with haploids. Um, each of these have a different set of chromosomes and this is what gives us the potential for a high degree of genetic variability if you look among your your siblings uh, you might notice different color hair uh, different heights uh, different body weights body composition This is, is in essence, the genetic variability from meiosis. Each of these have one set that will be joined by another set in fertilization, and so now you have uh, external genetic information in terms of sexual reproduction coming in to join the fertilized uh, embryo. In DNA transcription, we find uh, that very simply, DNA is copied via an expendable messenger RNA. This messenger RNA uh, codes for specific proteins. Uh, This occurs in the nucleus of the cell. The next step is DNA translation. Uh, This occurs in the cytosol. And this is by an interaction of messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and various amino acids and enzymes in terms of this assembly process. Uh, This is the factory, so to speak, uh, of all of the proteins uh, as the proteins are coded uh, by translated DNA. Transfer RNA has three base codons. And I always like to think of codons as the root word code. In a certain sense, we have a uh, a map, a formula, a schematic, if you will. And it's very interesting in terms of looking at this chemistry, this assembly chemistry and the drivers for this assembly chemistry in terms of the configurations of the amino acids, the configurations of the uh, nucleotides that allow for coding for these amino acids, all of this being, again, an incredible symphony of life. Um, These amino acids are added one at a time, uh, enzymatically. Uh, Messenger RNA helps, uh, transfer RNA helps shuttle these amino acids around to allow for this assembly. Uh, They form these chains, short chains of uh, amino acids called polypeptides. These polypeptides uh, get longer and grow into proteins. Uh, They have a specific amino acid sequence. Uh, In the book, there's a good cartoon on the internet. There's many uh, resources in terms of animations, uh, looking at various cell assembly animations. Uh, If you need to refresh your high school and uh, entry-level biology in terms of DNA translation, I suggest that you actually uh, seek out these resources. Now, in transcription and translation, remember that DNA is a double strand of nucleotides. Uh, These nucleotides are uh, combined uh, from our uh, nucleic acids, uh, sugar and phosphates. These nucleic acids, including cytosine, thymine, uracil, adenine, and guanine, C, T, U, A, and G, uh, allow, uh, in terms of the double helix, for base pairing. This base pairing is a hydrogen bonding phenomenon, uh, so it allows for a base pair, for instance, between adenine and thymine, or AT, uh, guanine cytosine, GC. Um, This has been represented uh, in many high school books, and you'll see it here in a moment in terms of our representation. Now in terms of some more definitions, gene is just a sequence of uh, bases that code for a specific sequence of amino acids. Uh, so it codes for a protein, the sequence of polypeptides building to a protein. This code or codon is actually a sequence of three bases, and these three bases code for a single amino acid. So for example, adenine, guanine, and cytosine will be the code for serine. And so when we uh, read in media uh, reports about they have cracked the human genetic code or some other animal, what we find is they have actually uh, have an idea of the sequences of bases in the human genome. And so we know what they code for. We don't necessarily know the next step is what all of these genes actually do in terms of deciphering the relationship of these structures to human formation, to human disease, uh, human uh, metabolism. One of the things that you should note at this point in time, and the used textbook does a good job of this, is that uh, there can be uh, problems uh, in terms of toxic potential uh, even at uh, this uh, uh, step. If, for example, we have a miscoding, um, sometimes we can have a misstep in terms of the next stage of translation. Remember also that transcription is equivalent to a copying process where DNA unzips and enzymes uh, make an RNA copy. Uh, The differences between DNA and RNA have to do with uh, thymine uh, is transferred for uracil. So we have a UA, not an RTA in terms of the uh, base pairing. And instead of uh, the uh, deoxyribose sugar, we have ribose. Um, In messenger RNA formation, we have this molecule, this biomolecule, uh, functioning to transport uh, this uh, uh, now to the cytoplasm. The next step is translation. This is the protein formation, important process. Uh, We can have disruption of the codons. We can have uh, false amino acids uh, come in, Uh, false keys in our key lock arrangement uh, in terms of the coding. Uh, These can yield uh, undesirable toxic outcomes. The messenger RNA uh, is simply thought about as uh, a blueprint, whereas uh, the uh, ribosomal RNA is more of a support uh, transfer RNA. Uh, Transfer RNA actually uh, transports uh, the amino acids uh, prior to assembly. Now, in terms of the structure and function relationships uh, available in DNA, these nucleotides uh, form chains. And so uh, these chains uh, form a uh, double helix, as you can kind of see uh, in the uh, uh, diagram below. Uh, Three nucleotides form a codon. Multiple codons will uh, come together to form a gene. Uh, these genes form chromosomes, and multiple chromosomes form DNA. And so that's the growth basis from smaller to larger in terms of the relationship of nucleotides to DNA. This gives you an idea, an image again. I always like to remind uh, biologists that fundamentally we're talking about chemistry and biochemistry that these uh, assemblies of molecules are just assemblies of atoms. Atoms are assemblies of particles and uh, charge uh, disposition. It all comes down to thermodynamics and kinetics in terms of what can uh, react. But it's important to note that these are reactive molecules. um, And in fact, there are many points on this chemical uh, double helix uh, that can be reports, uh, actually sites, of uh, direct uh, toxic impact. But the idea is that there needs to be not only the potential for chemical or functional group uh, interaction in terms of reactivity, but also molecular configuration. Uh, what do we have when we have a double helix? Uh, think of it again as a twisted ladder with many steps. And so there are certain size molecules and certain reactive uh, sites on molecules that can interact with uh, DNA, that can interact with RNA, and have this impact on these molecules of life some of the uh, impacts uh, have to do with uh, natural causes not everything is uh, a toxic impact uh, things just go bad this is a very complex orchestra and if you've ever been to the symphony uh, or to a concert occasionally you'll hear one of the players uh, play out of tune uh, it just happens uh, there is an error rate uh, there can be errors in bass pairing there can be uh, some response to that in terms of repair enzymes and other enzymes there's a whole sym- of regulatory genes, operons, uh, which are genes that uh, essentially control uh, genetic replication, and there can be termination sequences to essentially turn off uh, cellular replication, uh, essentially saying, we're done, uh, we don't go on forever. You can imagine that uh, interactions or problems with termination sequences are also a problem with cell apoptosis, this programmed cell death uh, that uh, is apparently uh, not functional in cancer uh, genes. Uh, We can have some uh, change in methylation patterns in terms of uh, DNA uh, nucleotides. Uh, We can have also some problems associated with post-transcriptional, translational uh, processing in terms of DNA replication. There can be some chemical interactions. So we have direct um, interactions between uh, endogenous or exogenous chemicals. Uh, We can find that uh, we can have alkylation, uh, covalent adducts that are formed between DNA and some sort of chemical. Uh, If you recall, some of the World War I uh, mustard gases uh, introduced as being kind of a uh, a toxic uh, chemical warfare agent. Uh, Not only were these acute toxicants, but they were also alkylating agents such that if you survive the initial toxicosis, you may actually have had some long-term problems with mutagenesis, carcinogenesis, from these very strong mustard alkylating agents. We can have a process of intercalation. This is a non-covalent binding. Uh, of uh, some sort of chemical between two adjacent base pairs. I've put a chemical representation uh, up here on this slide. This is uh, ethidium. Uh, Those of you that have ever worked in a molecular biology lab uh, have worked with uh, gel electrophoresis, know of uh, ethidium dibromide, uh, which is a chemical that is used in that process. On the bottle in the laboratory, it's always marked uh, caution mutagenic chemical. Uh, and the one of the reasons it's mutagenic is because it has this uh, intercalation uh, it actually just fits uh, quite well uh, it's a uh, planar somewhat planar molecule uh, there's some hydrogen bonding that occurs and so uh, this is not a covalent bonding and uh, because we now have changed uh, the uh, form and function of dna we have the potential for mutation we can have cross-linkage, and this is where we have a inter- or intrastrand covalent binding of a chemical. So remember that your nucleotides have uh, reactive functional groups, uh, nitrogens, uh, we have uh, oxygens uh, in there. Uh, the, uh, is, there is a potential that those reactive sites um, can get covalently bonded by various reactive chemicals, and we'll see one here in a moment. We can have uh, some sort of breakage, uh, a uh, scission uh, of one or both uh, strands of DNA, and this can be just uh, a very reactive chemical. Uh, Quite often this can be something, for example, like a free radical that just breaks a chain. Uh, DNA strand breaks are a potential uh, source of mutagenesis. This gives you an example of a uh, covalently bound DNA adduct. This is aflatoxin B1. This is a mycotoxin coming from the aspergillus uh, mycotoxin found, for example, in peanuts, uh, uh, sometimes in some areas of the world, in milk as well. Uh, You can see uh, here on a molecular basis uh, that the um, aflatoxin can bind a guanine residue uh, at the nitrogen uh, residue here. Uh, How this kind of looks in terms of the full uh, disposition of the DNA adduct. Uh, you notice that this is now uh, bound and has this covalently bound, and covalent binding uh, is uh, due to uh, energetics. Uh, It can be reversed, uh, but typically it will require energy uh, to be reversed, and that energy may come from enzymatic action repair uh, chemistry that happens to DNA. This is uh, probably the cause, uh, the mechanistic cause in terms of the carcinogenicity of aflatoxins. We're gonna switch over now to the uh, second stage of the interaction of uh, toxicology in the molecules of life and this is teratogenesis teratogenesis is more of the outcome rather than uh, perhaps the process it's the study of the frequency causation and development of congenital malformations Uh, there's typically a complex mechanism and timing of some of the disruptive actions these actions uh, typically will happen during critical stages of embryogenesis There are some natural bad paths, spontaneous abortions uh, in humans. This uh, rate is estimated to be 15 to 20 percent of all conceptions are are actually uh, end up in these uh, spontaneous natural abortions Uh, in humans. The time in embryogenesis that is most critical is the first eight weeks of gestation. Uh, In the uh, textbook and in other resources, you can see that there are certain developmental processes. Again, I'll go back to the uh, uh, example of a symphony. Uh, Things have to happen with a certain amount of harmony and timing. Uh, And if there is a potential toxication uh, happening at a critical time, we can end up with some of these bad paths. Some of these can lead to spontaneous abortion or uh, in some cases teratogenesis. Uh, This happens uh, during exposure of the conceptus during the embryonic stage. Uh, It can lead to morphological defects in terms of uh, cell differentiation in specialized tissues and organs. Uh, Typically, we associate teratogenesis with fetal stage exposure, and this is why if you're a pregnant mom or a uh, reproductive age female, uh, there is great concern in terms of the potential exposure of uh, you uh, to potential uh, toxicants, uh, whether they be uh, specific in terms of teratogenesis or specific in terms of potential neurological development or delayed neurological development. We do have a list of known human teratogens. Typically, when we know a chemical is teratogenic, it's because of an extraordinarily bad experience. Uh, Again, the used textbook goes through uh, a few of these. Uh, uh, They're unfortunate uh, parts of human history, uh, particularly devastating, uh, because we have great empathy for the individuals uh, uh, that have uh, uh, survived this, uh, as well as the uh, conceptus that don't survive. An example in terms of teratogenesis, this is uh, uh, deformed uh, offspring. Uh, sometimes they survive, sometimes they don't. It depends upon how uh, significant uh, the malformation is. Uh, the correct clinical term for the offspring is actually monster. Uh, this is not something out of the movies or something to joke about, um, that the uh, monster development uh, is, uh, again, a clinical term in terms of teratogens. Uh, and deformed conceptus. In this particular case, it's a five-legged frog. Uh, This is a significant uh, teratogenesis in terms of limb development. Uh, This was actually uh, back in the Uh, mid-90s. Many of you may have read of uh, this episode. It was a grade school class, I believe, in Minnesota that was out uh, doing an ecological investigation. Uh, of uh, some local ponds and waterways Uh, they were looking at tadpoles and frogs and noticed uh, a few too many uh, deformed frogs Uh, and in terms of uh, a a grade school class these would attract a significant amount of attention and perhaps uh, it it, uh, attracted even more attention in terms of scientific community in terms of media analysis uh, of this because of the way it happened Uh, There's always a uh, great concern that there is some chemical, chemical X, out in the environment. Uh, If it's doing this to frogs, what's it doing to my kids or potentially doing to my kids in terms of mutations? Uh, A significant amount of alarm in the media. Uh, When the ecologists and the environmental toxicologists actually went in and did a thorough workup, uh, we actually found that the uh, causative factor was infectious, uh, not chemical. Uh, there was a particular parasitic fluke uh, that was uh, infesting this and in these animals uh, during the embryonic stages and causing these malformations. There was obviously a whole cascade of effect and in terms of a linkage to pollution, uh, there is at least an assessment that uh, enhanced nutrients excuse me enhanced nutrients uh, may have been the cause uh, in terms of enhancing the life cycle of these parasites and having a higher organism uh, impact in terms of teratogenesis. This uh, picture here is uh, ovine cyclopia. Uh, This is uh, obviously a devastating teratogenesis uh, to uh, sheep. Uh, It comes from uh, animals uh, that graze in the early uh, periods of gestation on Veratrum uh, californicum or false heliobore. Uh, false helioport has some steroidal uh, means that uh, will uh, yield uh, this uh, particular uh, teratogenesis in uh, their lambs. Uh, This is a naturally occurring uh, teratogen. Uh, Many of you have perhaps uh, even in the western US, if you go into a wet area um, in some of your hikes, uh, you might see a false Heliobor, uh sometimes referred to as skunk cabbage, uh, growing in wet areas. Uh, it's uh, got a tube. Uh, there is a, um, a, a starchy root uh, associated with this. And uh, if grazed upon, again, in certain uh, levels at uh, certain stages in terms of uh, pregnancy, uh, you can end up with this uh, particular uh, disposition of teratogenesis. This is another case of a natural plant uh, toxin. These are quinolizidine alkaloids uh, from the uh, anagyrene-type uh, 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 chemicals. Uh, they're found in lupins. Uh, many of us have gone uh, hiking in the early spring and seen fairly large-scale uh, fields of purple or blue lupins covering the hillside they're very beautiful but uh, they have the potential uh, for toxicity uh, toxicity as teratogenesis the disposition of this particular of uh, is uh, in livestock called crooked calf disease Uh, what we find is uh, this bowed uh, formation there's an arch in the back uh, uh, animals uh, exposed to this particular alkaloid in utero um, actually can survive. Uh, it's a difficult life, I'm sure, uh, as uh, this, this animal is uh, uh, at least several years old. Um, but there's a specific sort of uh, uh, disposition in terms of teratogenesis, its structural anomaly in terms of a bowed back and a bowing of the forelimbs particularly tragic uh, uh, case uh, study uh, I've talked about here. Uh, this is with humans in terms of lupin alkaloid birth defects. Uh, this was in 1980. There was a baby boy born in a backcountry uh, Trinity County uh, uh, in Northern California. He was brought to the UC Medical Center in Sacramento with had severe bone deformities uh, in his arms and hands and a partial absence of forearm bones uh, and absent thumbs. Uh, Obviously the uh, physicians there gave uh, an extensive medical history workup and genetic analyses that parents uh, indicated that it wasn't, uh, probably wasn't hereditary in terms of uh, genetic. Uh, It's probably some sort of environmental exposure. In terms of a follow-up workup of what might be happening, Uh, The parents were worried about herbicide spraying that had happened uh, in some of the forests uh, nearby. Uh, There had been uh, some uh, linkage in terms of uh, uh, various uh, modes of toxicity with these herbicides. Uh, There was uh, uh, some concern in terms of dose and potential response. There was also uh, some evidence uh, presented that uh, this particular family uh, raised uh, goats and uh, drank their own goat milk and that in fact uh, uh, there was an analysis of the dogs on their particular property that uh, were also exposed to goat milk uh, that also had uh, this same pattern of uh, bone deformity. Uh, The goat milk uh, in that area um, can be impacted as any natural grazing uh, impact uh, in terms of the plant kingdom. Uh, uh, Alpine uh, lupin is uh, uh, a a fairly uh, uh, common species in the area. Uh, At University of California, Davis, they actually did some controlled studies with uh, uh, mountain lupin, uh, to determine that, in fact, uh, significant amounts of, uh, of the anagyrine can actually show up in ghost milk, a particularly uh, tragic case in terms of teratogenesis. Our next step that we're going to talk about uh, here today um, on our uh, trifecta is mutagenesis. Uh, mutagenesis involves somatic cell mutations, um, when we have uh, yielding some sort of uh, metabolic dysfunction, sometimes this can also yield carcinogenesis. And so this is the relationship between a cell mutation or mutation in the genetic code and carcinogenesis. Uh, In germ cell mutation, this is when a mutation can have this heritable change that we introduced. It can be a point mutation. So we can find that there is a base substitution uh, this can include uh, base analogs. Uh, for example, there are some uh, toxic mushrooms that provide uh, uh, analog uh, bases as a mode of their toxicity. Uh, what this does is has a cascading effect in terms of protein synthesis. Uh, and there's another one that can be, a, for example, defined as a frame shift, and the used textbook uh, discusses this quite well. We can also have a chromosomal aberration and this can be, uh, a, either a, uh, an anomaly in the structure of the chromosome. Uh, this can be, uh, because of, for example, uh, mutation that is developed from a chemical reaction. Uh, there can also be a numerical anomaly where we just have, have that, uh, uh, key critical number of chromosomes in terms of reproduction. One of the ways we do an analysis of uh, chromosomes is by the use of kerotypes. Uh, Because chromosomes are microscopically visible, uh, we can actually uh, separate them, align them, and uh, examine their patterns, uh, count them out, uh, looking in terms of genetic analysis. Uh, So here, uh, as I've said, we have uh, 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 23 uh, pairs. These are, uh, this is a typical uh, human uh, kerotype, XY, so this is a male kerotype. Uh, These uh, XY, XX uh, uh, chromosomes down here are responsible for secondary sexual characteristics. In terms of aberrations, when we look for uh, genetic aberrations, in terms of uh, the number or the structure, uh, we can find aneuploidy or polyploidy. And this can be either the loss or gain of complete chromosomes. Uh, These analyses in terms of chromosomal workup are are visible once again. And this is, uh, for example, uh, when a pregnant mom goes through amniocentesis in terms of looking for uh, potential genetic uh, defects of the conceptus. Uh, These are some of the sorts of analyses uh, that are done. Uh, Down syndrome is uh, 47, so there's an extra chromosome. It's a 21 plus, and so instead of two chromosomes here, um, there would be a third one. Kleinfelder's uh, s- syndrome, uh, which is a secondary sexual characteristic uh, syndrome, uh, is uh, in the XY, and so instead of an XY, you have an XY. Uh, the uh, Turner syndrome is an XO uh, monosomy. So there is no second uh, chromosome. We have only an X chromosome, no Y, no second X. Uh, These are all survivable uh, um, aberrations uh, in terms of chromosomal makeup. Uh, They do yield a significant uh, uh, change uh, in uh, the uh, uh, offspring uh, from this uh, genetic variation. One of the ways that we actually look at chemicals in terms of uh, trying to find out if in fact they are mutagenic, they have the ability to change the molecules of life, is using the Ames test uh, uh, for chemical mutagenicity. The Ames test is is wonderful because of its simplicity uh, and its ability to screen uh, significant numbers of chemicals and their metabolites uh, for potential mutagenicity. Uh, quite often when you uh, see that a chemical is uh, regarded as mutagenic, it is because of, among other tests, uh, it has uh, failed, if you will, the AIMS test. What we have in the AIMS test is a fairly simple uh, salmonella bacteria strain that uh, in this particular strain has a histidine um, coding defect. What happens is that uh, in, uh, when, when dosed with a uh, mutagenic chemical, that defect can change. And so uh, that uh, defect will allow uh, cell division and growth. And so the histidine coding defect uh, limits growth and development of this cell culture. Uh, so what to, to conduct the test, the salmonella uh, uh, culture is added with uh, a test chemical and sometimes uh, with rat hepatocytes, and why do we do that? Well, we've talked about this in terms of um, these rat hepatocytes allow for uh, some level of metabolism. Uh, These are uh, liver cells, so there is some biotransformation that occurs so it allows to the analysis of the mutagenic properties of the parent chemical, but also the uh, primary uh, metabolites. Um, Because the chemical will allow for mutations and because of the rapid replication of uh, bacteria, if in fact there is a mutation that corrects this histidine coding defect, you see substantial cell division and growth. And so uh, here's a situation where the mutation has been a positive mutation in terms of the bacterial strain, from uh, a limited uh, growth potential to a significant growth potential. This slide is... uh Uh, essentially uh, a a diagram of the sequence of events in carcinogenesis, our next uh, topic of discussion. We can break this down because it is a very complex undertaking. People spend their careers studying cancer and carcinogenesis. Uh, We're going to give kind of in the next uh, uh, end of this uh, particular lecture uh, some uh, introductory uh, useful uh, information. about carcinogenesis that's important to understand in terms of your development of understanding of toxicology. Uh, carcinogenesis is considered to be a multi-step, multifactorial uh, disease. We typically have uh, a uh, procarcinogen chemical. Uh, it may be uh, non-reactive, so we may have a toxication uh, to develop it into uh, a carcinogen. Uh, this carcinogen has some level of interaction uh, with DNA uh, and uh, that can be uh, a fairly uh, wide range of interactions as we've discussed one of the paths can be that uh, because we have this interaction we have an immediate mutation Uh, that mutation leads to uncontrolled cell growth uh, and cancer Uh, We can also have this uh, interaction yielding a mutation, an initial stage of cancer. Uh, This initial stage is uh, perhaps uh, uh, best uh, termed as an initiator uh, stage. And so uh, the uh, initiation happens, but it doesn't necessarily get promoted or go to the next stage in terms of uh, development of cancer cells. So the multifactorial aspect is that you need not only a, an initiator, but you need a promoting agent uh, that uh, encourages the growth and development. Uh, for example, hormones of various types can have uh, uh, this promoting agent uh, interaction. Uh, This promotion encourages uh, cell growth. Uh, At some point it becomes uh, uncontrollable and also leads to cancer. Uh, And again, the uh, amount of uh, information and research and scientific study we have on cancer has developed tremendous background in understanding how carcinogenesis happens. Uh, We don't necessarily have all of the answers, but we have a good idea on the uh, disruption and the progression. And these, the more we know, have the ability to not only isolate carcinogenic chemicals, but also battle the disease once started. Next few slides, what we'll do is go through some cancer definitions. This is just to help you in terms of your reading and understanding of cancer. Uh, several of us, I'm sure, have had uh, cancer impact our own lives or through our families, our loved ones, friends, uh, and also just uh, reading about uh, individuals uh, that have uh, had the unfortunate diagnosis of cancer in their lifetime. Uh, Cancer is broadly defined as a malignant tumor that has the ability to metastasize or invade the surrounding tissues. Uh, We can also uh, talk about cancer in terms of it being a tumor. Uh, These are typically neoplasm or neoplastic. Uh, It's a general term for uncontrolled growth of cells uh, that become progressively worse in time. Uh, Some of these neoplasms can be slow-growing. They can also be tumors that are uh, malignant or non-malignant. Neoplasia, this is just a simple term for the growth of new tissue with abnormal and unregulated cell proliferation. So this whole regulation and control of cell uh, growth and then cell death is an important part of the differentiation between normal cell biology and cancer cell biology. A benign tumor is a tumor that develops. It does not metastasize. We need to know what metastasize means. A metastasis is the ability to establish secondary tumor growth, typically at a new location. And so there is uh, the ability for, in fact, single cells to migrate, for example, through the lymph system, uh, which does transport particles and cells. uh, And along the way, it lodges and starts developing this uncontrolled multiple growth. This is why, for example, in some metastasizing cancers Uh, one of the first things they do if it's a known type of cancer that metastasize uh, they will do uh, a complete uh, CAT scan and try to locate uh, via various uh, dye uptakes uh, various chemical uptakes uh, whether uh, this particular uh, cancer has metastasized Uh, there are critical organs that are involved uh, in metastasis Uh, and typically I I like to think of uh, um, Cancer, especially metastasizing cancer, as being uh, a blockage chemical, a, b- a blockage cancer. Uh, these are cancers uh, where the tissue itself gets so large it blocks uh, significant function and blood flow to significant organs. Uh, it can take up uh, or overconsume various uh, building blocks, uh, challenge a particular normal function. Uh, and also with the development of uh, pain and uh, finally uh, succumbing to uh, a significant amount of this uncontrolled uh, cellular growth probably heard the terms carcinoma and sarcoma they're different terms carcinoma is a malignant tumor that arises in the epithelium so these epithelial cells uh, so for example uh, we uh... sometimes will deal with uh, uh... for example skin cells epithelial cancer of the skin like uh, basal cell carcinoma uh... this is the most common form of cancer we have uh, a tremendous amount of epithelial cells uh... Uh, in our lungs, in our gastrointestinal tract, uh, and on our skin. Uh, We find that this uh, usually spreads in the lymphatic system. Uh, Those of you that know about melanoma or the bad kind of skin cancer, uh, not that any kind of skin cancer is good, the worst kind, um, that one of the key indicators of uh, survivability is whether or not melanoma has entered the lymphatic system. If it has entered the lymphatic system, Typically, that is a a bad indicator of uh, outcome. Sarcoma is malignant tumor in muscle or uh, connective tissue. For example, bone cancer is a sarcoma. Uh, It's usually spread in the bloodstream. Uh, Typically, it uh, metastasizes uh, to the lung. And so we find that uh, the cancer itself, once metastasized, can impact uh, critical organs. Uh, There's a dysfunction, uh, for example, uh, and we'll show you a a slide here of kidney cancer. Uh, We've talked about kidney physiology and the importance of kidney physiology and the nephron function in terms of balancing fluids, balancing the uh, molecules of life, uh, yes, we can uh, do without kidneys in terms of uh, having a single kidney or um, being on dialysis for some period of time. Uh, typically uh, in early stage uh, kidney cancer and, and even in advanced stage, uh, kidney dysfunction is extremely common. Uh, urinating uh, blood or red urine uh, is usually an indicator that the structural integrity of the kidney uh, has been compromised uh, due to these tumor growth. Well, in multistage carcinogenesis, we talked about this initiation step and then a promotion step. Uh, The initiation uh, can be a chemical. It can be a virus. It can just be a spontaneous sort of mutation that occurs. Uh, There can be kind of some genetic defect uh, there. It causes this DNA lesion. Uh, This DNA has the potential, because it's in a cell, uh, to replicate and therefore Uh, propagate uh, this particular uh, uh, lesion. Uh, This propagation is through cell uh, division. Uh, There's no real outcome if it's not promoted. Uh, There are some chemicals that uh, can initiate and also promote. Um, And these initiated cells uh, can remain indefinitely uh, if not promoted. Uh, There are some estimates that our bodies have about 100,000 hits of cancer initiation each and every day. This doesn't have to do with necessarily environmental pollution uh, or behaviors. It just happens uh, because of the numbers uh, and and the potential for defects in all of the uh, uh, hundreds of thousands or billions of processes that are happening on a molecular basis in our bodies every day. There is a potential that this can be a one-hit. There's no real threshold, and so we talked about this as being a non-threshold effect in dose response um, because one chemical, uh, one molecule of a chemical, one virus, uh, can actually cause one cell to to misdivide uh, to have this uh, perpetuated DNA lesion. And once we have this uh, lesion, we have the potential for uh, this irreversible uh, growth and development uh, effect. Our immune system is pretty good uh, at detecting cells that are misbehaving. Uh, So we have the ability to sort these out. And so there has been, for example, linkages between healthy immune system and the onset of cancer. And so this allows you to kind of consider overall healthy individual. Does cancer happen in apparently healthy individuals? The answer to that question is yes. Some of the properties of these initiated cells, there's no phenotypic uh, differences. So one cell is exactly the same as the next one in cancer cells. Uh, there can be, they can be characterized by uh, the coding defects uh, of the cells. So there can be some excess or deficiency of critical enzyme or enzyme systems, uh, glutathione transferase, uh, uh, glu- um, glucose 6-phosphate, uh, for example, an antioxidant. Uh, there can be iron exclusion, ATPase. Uh, all of these have some sort of potential uh, expression in cancer cells. Uh, There is a resistance to cytotoxic chemicals uh, that can have faster or slower metabolism uh, in terms of uh, uh, oncology oncology and cancer therapy, Uh, what uh, uh, chemotherapy tries to do is to use cytotoxic chemicals uh, that are, uh, that exploit either the faster or slower metabolism of these particular cells versus their neighbor normal cells, the uh, differentiated cells. Uh, These uh, initiated cells typically show impaired cellular uh, communication, They have uh, an enhanced response to growth factors, uh, and they have a resistance to terminal differentiation, the cell apoptosis that essentially controls normal cell life. And so they they typically have an array of differences, uh, and this is a base cause in terms of the onset of cancer. In terms of the next uh, step or the promotion in multi-stage carcinogenesis, uh, what happens uh, this is, is these chemicals change the microenvironment of these initiated cells. Uh, they can be uh, chemicals, uh, these uh, chemical viral spontaneous induced clonal Uh, Proliferation of um, these uh, initiated cells can actually uh, have their growth control changed by various types of chemicals around them. Uh, These can be receptors, immune function uh, modulators, uh, endocrine control chemicals, communication chemicals, uh, metabolic chemicals, and some of the apoptosis signaling chemicals in terms of chemotaxis. Um, All of these can be changed. We're not going to go into specifics. Just note that uh, these promotion chemicals essentially change the chemical environment uh, around uh, these initiated cells. Typically, when we talk about promotion chemicals, um, these aren't single-hit. These typically are regarded as uh, multi-hit, high-dose toxic interactions. Um, Typically, they're found to be reversible, and they can be regarded as having a threshold-like effect, although the overall effect, in terms of initiation and promotion, is regarded as non-threshold. In terms of the progression, as we uh, progress uh, from these promoter chemicals, these cells demonstrate a complete loss of growth control. Uh, there's an instability in the karyotype, so we have chromosomal instability. Uh, there can be a gain or a loss of chromosomal fragments in some of these cells as they develop. Uh, There can be uh, demethylation uh, in terms of some of the base pairs and deregulation of uh, uh, various aspects of DNA replication. There can be gene amplification. Uh, We can find error-prone DNA repair. Simply enough, uh, most of these changes, uh, because they are molecules of life changes, DNA changes, they are irreversible. Once they're on a track, uh, they seem to have spontaneous continuity. Uh, we have the same mechanism in the progression as in uh, promotion of the uh, multi-stage cancer. We can take a look at carcinogenic chemicals and classify them as to their aspect of whether or not they are involved in initiation or in promotion of cancer. We can classify carcinogens, these chemical toxicants, as genotoxic. These genotoxic chemicals, act directly on DNA or the expression of DNA during uh, translation. They can induce DNA replication errors, point mutations, and some sort of chromosomal aberrations. We can also classify carcinogens as epigenetic. These are non-DNA reactive, and so uh, if you were thinking of aflatoxin, you would think of it as a genotoxic chemical. Um, Epigenetic chemicals are non-DNA reactive. Uh, They're potentiators. Uh, They challenge or change uh, cell hormone or immune functions. Uh, They modify various uh, processes or the chemical environment uh, around these cells. In terms of genotoxic uh, carcinogens, uh, these chemicals are capable of producing cancer by directly altering the genetic material of these uh, uh, target cells. And so these are direct carcinogens, so these mustard gases, alkylating agents, uh, they don't require metabolic activation, and so they are reactive in and of themselves. And so those sorts of chemicals that require uh, uh, no uh, biotransformation are typically, uh, that are carcinogens, are typically genotoxic carcinogens. There are also indirect uh, carcinogens. They do require uh, metabolic activation. We talked about PAHs, and we'll see it here in a moment, uh, forming an epoxide. Uh, These epoxides form uh, reactive uh, free radicals. Uh, aromatic amines, nitrosamines uh, that occur in in gut cancers, uh, natural substances such as the mycotoxins we discussed and various inorganic carcinogens, uh, cadmium, chromium, uh, nickel, arsenic among them. Uh, The whole driver, for example, in arsenic levels in drinking water is the development of bladder cancer uh, and, in some other cases, uh, lung cancer and various gut cancers associated with those municipalities, uh, those environments where high arsenic levels occur in drinking water. For epigenetic carcinogens, these are cytotoxic uh, carcinogens, and so some examples are NTA, nitrotri- uh, nitrilo uh, acetic acid, or as acetate. Uh, NTA uh, was actually uh, a chemical that was used in various uh, laundry detergents uh, uh, until I believe it was banned uh, approximately, I'd say, about 1990 or so. Uh, and they were finding NTA out in, in environmental waters. Uh, other cytotoxic carcinogens include BHA and BHA, butyl hydroxy aldehyde, butyl hydroxy toluene. Um, These are called carcinogens because they are promoter chemicals. Uh, They are not carcinogenic in and of themselves, but they are carcinogenic when in a promotion environment. There are tumor promoters, DDT and dioxin. Our next lecture uh, will talk about dioxin and its risk assessment. Uh, Various hormones, estradiol, uh, diethylstobesterol, DES. Uh, The book uh, details uh, an exceptionally... uh, 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 significant, uh, I guess, experiment gone wrong in terms of a pharmaceutical development and the use of DES uh, in early term uh, pregnancy to, uh, as, as a hormonal agent uh, to manage uh, um, discomfort in pregnant women. We also find that the various immunosuppressants like cyclosporin A, cyclosporin, uh, are epigenetic carcinogens. Um, cyclosporin A is a, a drug that is given to uh, patients that are involved in tissue transplants, uh, for example, a kidney transplant. Uh, particulates as well can function as epigenetic carcinogens, uh, for example, asbestos. I told you we uh, would talk about the uh, uh, promotion aspect uh, of um, PAH carcinogenic activation Uh, this is uh, the uh, Bay region of um, a PAH Uh, what we find is that uh, it forms uh, an epoxide Uh, if we take a look at that this epoxide goes to a diol This diol epoxide, um, the next step is uh, DNA reactive, uh, so we can form uh, from these PAHs uh, DNA adducts uh, that will cause, uh, have the potential to uh, initiate uh, uh, DNA mutations. This is a partial list of proven human carcinogens. And typically, when we have proven human carcinogens, we have uh, the results from either occupational or environmental exposure. Uh, Obviously, we don't do cancer trials on humans. Uh, What we do is collect a sufficient amount of data. And quite often, this data comes from, again, industrial or occupational or environmental exposures, sustained exposures. Um, Some of the chemicals and again, this is not a complete list, <coughs> include um, aflatoxins, for amino biphenyl arsenic, benzene, uh, benzidine, beryllium, uh, bischloroethyl ether, cadmium, chromium-6, uh, which differentiates from chromium-4, which is abundant in the environment, um, soot, uh, mineral oils, mustard gas, uh, naphthalamine, nickel, vinyl chloride, uh, all of these uh, Uh, of uh, uh, known human carcinogen uh, uh, recognition we can also uh, link human carcinogenesis with substance abuse uh, alcoholism uh, and uh, liver damage associated with uh, alcoholism in its uh, complete progression can lead to cancer Uh, In uh, some country, the chewing of betel nuts uh, is associated with uh, esophageal and oral cancers, uh, cigarettes, and the well-known linkage between uh, lung cancer. In terms of occupational exposure especially, dust and fibers, such as asbestos, silica, uh, and the development of silicosis, Uh, Soots, uh, for example, uh, the development uh, that was observed uh, over a century ago of various types of cancer in chimney sweeps in London was one of the first uh, occupational exposure cancer linkages developed. Uh, Talcum or clay dust, uh, wood dust, uh, these are chemical irritants uh, that yield uh, potential for cancer. Cancer has also been linked to chronic infection, uh, the uh, H. pylori uh, bacterium uh, associated with stomach ulcers both hepatitis B and C and the chronic infection, liver infection associated with liver cancer, uh, HIV, liver fuchs, uh, papillomavirus, uh, and with the wonderful news in the past six months or so of the development of a, of a vaccine for uh, papillomavirus, uh, which has been linked to, to cervical cancer. Uh, schistosomes, which are a uh, waterborne parasite, uh, that can enter uh, the human body and uh, in uh, especially in unclean waters. There are some initiator chemicals that we do find uh, in foods. Uh, most of the genotoxic chemicals uh, can be found uh, in some trace variety, just because of their presence uh, in the environment. For example. Uh, Uh, trace levels of DDT and its metabolite DDE Uh, the PAHs uh, like benzopyrene that might develop uh, from barbecuing uh, meats various aromatic amines uh, that might be used uh, in uh, or developed in various uh, uh, chemical food processes or preparations Um, Heterocyclic amines, mycotoxins from funguses uh, that grow uh, in normal natural uh, infestations uh, in certain types of climates, in certain types of grains, such as corn, barley, wheat. Um, Nitrosamines uh, that form on the reaction of uh, nitrites, uh, sometimes used uh, as food preservatives with various uh, amine groups uh, that are available on proteins and peptides. Nitrosimids uh, being another category of initial initiator chemicals that occur in food. Some of the promoting agents that uh, can occur in food, BHT, uh, saccharin. Uh, you can read the saccharin debates. Uh, uh, saccharin in and of itself uh, is not an initiator chemical, but it is a promoter chemical. Uh, Colic acid, uh, TCDD, or tetrachlorodibenzodioxin. Uh, It's out there. It's out there in extraordinarily trace amounts in uh, typical animal fat. Uh, It's a part of your diet. We'll talk about that uh, in detail next lecture. And also uh, alcohol, again, alcohol uh, yielding cellular damage uh, in the liver. This... uh, Uh, chart is useful you'll hear terms uh, such as uh, human carcinogen probable uh, human carcinogen uh, possible uh, and various uh, other types uh, in terms of group a uh, group B1 group B2 Uh, Typically, if you're doing laboratory work and you're doing uh, work with uh, either Group B or Group A chemical, you're going to be doing that glove box uh, or with a sufficient amount of personal protective gear on, whether it be uh, masks or uh, uh, latex gloves, depending upon the particular type of chemical. Uh, If it's volatile, uh, you'll probably be at least working in a hood, uh, if not a glove box. Uh, The idea is is that we've grouped uh, carcinogens based on the amount of evidence, and this is a shifting designation in terms of a particular chemical as we get new knowledge. And so in terms of the uh, risk assessment of a particular chemical, if, for example, there is an occupational exposure or a plethora of clinical cases of human carcinoma associated with a particular chemical exposure, it may for example be bumped up from probable to a known human carcinogen it's good to uh, kind of end this with a just a general discussion of cancer uh, cancer is a word that in and of itself is somewhat terrifying to most of us a cancer diagnosis is extraordinarily unwelcome uh, what we find is is that there is a tremendous amount of misrepresentation or misunderstanding of the causes of cancer and the occurrence of cancer in human population as it turns out when we do epidemiological analysis of the causes of cancer we find out that our own behaviors are the principal linkages in terms of cancer Uh, we tend to magnify risk that is uh, given to us, for example, uh, through the actions uh, or activities of others. For example, things like air pollution or polluted water, uh, when in fact it's our own behaviors that are the strongest linkage uh, to cancer. These linkages include, in terms of epidemiological linkages, uh, diet at 35 percent in terms of relationship, uh, tobacco smoking 30 percent, sexual behavior Uh, 7% in terms of alcohol, about 3%. Uh, Infection, uh, 10% occupational exposure is something that uh, is one of those uh, sorts of uh, linkages of cancer that we tend to, because our jobs, we have an exposure, uh, it doesn't uh, dismiss or discount it, uh, but at 4% it's uh, significantly lower than, for example, some of our uh, elective behaviors. Uh, UV radiation, uh, these are associated uh, typically with skin cancers, associated with sunburn at 3%. Uh, There can also be a linkage between uh, natural background or uh, industrial levels or uh, uh, post-nuclear testing fallout uh, at 3%. Pollution uh, is regarded as a relatively small linkage in terms of the causes of cancer at 2%. In terms of the uh, American Cancer Society's estimated U.S. cancer cases, uh, in 2006 uh, they are projecting uh, that there will be about uh, uh, 1,400,000 cases of cancer. These are diagnosed uh, cases. These are extrapolated numbers based on previous years and growth in population and epidemiological statistical analysis. Um, in men, there will be about 720,000 uh, new cases of cancer. In women, about 680,000. If you look at the differentiation by gender, we find that about 33% uh, of the cases in men will be prostate cancer, lung cancer, and bronchus cancer at 13%, colon and rectal cancer at 10%, and then in single-digit urinary Melanoma, of the skin, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, kidney cancer, uh, oral cavity cancer, leukemia, pancreas, and all of the sites at about 18%. In women, the dominant uh, cancer diagnosis will be breast cancer at 31%, lung cancer at 12%, colorectal cancer at uh, 11%, and also then in single digits, uterine, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, melanoma of the the skin, uh, thyroid cancer, ovarian cancer, and various other cancers. There is a differentiation according to gender, uh, not only in uh, estimated cancer, but also in the estimated cancer deaths. Uh, In the United States uh, this year, about 291,000 men will uh, die of cancer and 273,000 will uh, die as well. And so there is a difference in terms of exploring the impact of cancer on the U.S. population between diagnosis and survivability and also cancer deaths. When we look at that and compare it to the last slide in terms of diagnoses and the relationship of a cancer diagnosis with death from cancer, there is some differentiation. Obviously, in both of these slides for men and women, lung cancer um, is uh, the most significant cause of death at 31% of the cases for men and 23 or 26% uh, in women in uh, uh uh, colorectal cancer, uh, about uh, the next uh, highest level for men is about 10%, uh, whereas in women uh, as a cause of death, uh, 15% for breast cancer. Prostate cancer is 9% for men, colorectal is 10% for women and various others down here in terms of the relative uh, association of cancer diagnosis and death in the U.S. population currently, and this is has a lot to do with current therapeutics uh, associated with uh, 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 the uh, uh, treatment of cancer and cancer diagnosis. One of the nice ways to kind of examine uh, the role of cancer in our uh, mortality uh, is examining the epidemiological statistics for the lifetime probability of developing cancer. Uh, for men, and this is uh, an analysis of uh, uh, epidemiological data from the years 2000 to 2002, for all men, uh, the risk of developing some sort of cancer is about one in two. About half of us will develop cancer uh, in our lifetime. Uh, of that, uh, the predominant cancer that we will be diagnosed with, uh, will, uh, one per- of one uh, six, will be prostate cancer. 1 in 13 will get a diagnosis of lung cancer. Uh, Colorectal cancer is 1 in 17 and the rest of them being uh, higher uh, uh, or less likely occurrences. In women uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, The uh, development of uh, cancer uh, is uh, significantly different from men. Uh, For all sites uh, women have a uh, risk of 1 in 3 Uh, For breast cancer, uh, women find that uh, we find the epidemiological analysis that that statistic is 1 in uh, 8, so fairly similar in terms of prostate cancer, the 1 in 6 that we find for men. Um, Lung and bronchus, 1 in 17, a little bit less than what men do, and this has a lot to do with elective behaviors, as we'll see here in a moment. Uh, Colorectal cancer, uh, 1 in 18 and the rest of them in terms of uh, some of the various uh, uh, probability of developing cancers uh, in this particular epidemiological cohort. Let's examine, uh, just as a, uh, uh, an idea here, uh, one cancer, and we'll just kind of look at the development of colorectal cancer. Uh, we're not going to go through this on a necessarily on a cellular basis. We'll just do it from a macroscopic basis, again, to orient you on uh, the small intestine, uh, the colon, and the rectum. In terms of your physiology, uh, this is where it happens. Colorectal cancer starts uh, with colon polyps. Uh, this is an actual uh, micrograph uh, from a sigmoidoscopy of what a, a colon polyp uh, looks like. Uh, they recommend uh, that as you hit your 40s, you start getting uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy or um, uh, other sorts of analyses uh, to uh, examine for the development of colon polyps. As it turns out, the development of polyps uh, have some risk factors. Uh, if you're over fifty, is a large risk factor. Previous occurrence. So if you know that your parents have had a diagnosis of colon polyps, uh, you probably have a, a significant chance of getting them. High-fat, low-fiber diets uh, can lead to uh, be linked with uh, uh, colon polyp development. Smoking, alcohol consumption, sedentary lifestyles, and being overweight uh, all are risk factors uh, for colon polyps. Colon polyps are the initial stage of colorectal cancer, and so if we stage this out from, in this case, stage 0, stage 1, two, 3, and 4, What you can see is the relative invasive nature of the advance in staging of colorectal cancer. Uh, Obviously, uh, with routine checkups, and they recommend sigmoidoscopies about once every five years, if you can catch colon polyps, uh, these uh, aberrations in stage one, there has been no proliferation in terms of linkages with the uh, lymph nodes in the lymph lymph, uh, circulation system. As we start getting into stage uh, uh, um, two and three, uh, there is a potential for interaction uh, and uh, a breakthrough in the uh, mucosa and the um, outer lining of the intestines uh, and stage four where we have a uh, uh, spread to other organs. These are some uh, uh, tissue photographs of what cancer uh, looks like uh, in uh, autopsies from individuals. Uh, this is a uh, kidney uh, that has been removed. Uh, if you have a localized kidney cancer um, and it's caught early enough, uh, golf ball stage or below, I would say, uh, you probably have a 65% survival uh, uh, rate uh, over five, for the next five years. Uh, These are are why uh, any sort of abnormalities in your urine stream need to be checked out. Uh, What you can see, in fact, here now that we've done in this course uh, several uh, images of what a kidney looks like, you can see that the invasive nature of the cells, the uncontrolled growth, actually are systematically disruptive to uh, all of the orchestrations of fluid flow including blood flow and urine flow in this particular organ and therefore leading to at least partial if not complete organ failure. In liver cancer, organ failure associated with with, uh, uh, cancer is lethal. Uh, You can see by the uh, disposition of the coloring on this particular uh, uh, metastasized uh, liver uh, that in fact this liver um, is uh, uh, at least partially and almost perhaps in a majority uh, non-functional uh, for the organ that controls the biosynthesis of most of the molecules of life uh, in our body and synthesis of energy stores. Uh, uh, this is a uh, lethal impact. A non-lethal impact typically is basal cell carcinoma. Uh, this uh, perhaps is uh, Uh, a uh, carcinoma that is uh, uniquely avoidable uh, by the use of uh, sunscreens and avoidance uh, of sunburn Uh, back in my days uh, it was very common uh, in the early 60s to come home with a uh, a very red sunburn it was before the development of the uh, SPF high SPF factor uh, tanning lotions Uh, my generation especially fair-haired individuals including myself Uh, have a routine uh, diagnosis of basal cell carcinoma from the amount of sun, depending upon our skin coloration, our genetics, and the amount of uh, uh, sun exposure we had with our typical behaviors, uh, typically as children but also as young adults. In terms of identifying, uh, finishing off our our lecture here today uh, with the linkage of risk factors and uh, carcinogenesis, uh, there's many of them, you're aware of, of most of them just through public education, public health education impacts. Uh, what you may not know is that, uh, uh, these behaviors, uh, and, uh, as well the, uh, the, um, tests and, uh, analysis of uh, various things like, uh, uh, your uh, prostate-specific antigen, or uh, your um, uh, breast analysis in your, li- in your uh, normal um, uh, uh, physicals uh, do help catch uh, cancer at an early stage when it is most treatable. Uh, some of what we can do to avoid a diagnosis of cancer has to do with modifying behaviors, One of the behaviors that has had the most substantial linkage, epidemiological linkage, to the onset of cancer is tobacco use. Uh, Here, the green line, you can see, and this is a chart from uh, 1900 to uh, just beyond 2000, 2002. Um, And uh, in the green line, this is per capita cigarette consumption. You can see that uh, it peaked uh, in the mid-60s. Um, and started declining. Uh, this had a lot to do with the Surgeon General's uh, uh, linkage uh, and uh, the uh, ter- words that appear now on cigarette uh, cartons in terms of linkages of lung cancer uh, with uh, tobacco use. Uh, in males on the blue line, you can see that there was uh, a relationship with the decline of tobacco use and the decline of these are age-adjusted lung cancer deaths and so there was a decline in lung cancer deaths that uh, parallels uh, if uh, uh, coupled by about uh, 10 or 20 years of, of difference there this is also uh, impacted by uh, not only a decrease in tobacco use but an increase in our ability to uh, understand and diagnose uh, and treat uh, various types of cancer. What's interesting also uh, is uh, the development of uh, uh, female lung cancer. Uh, death rate changes uh, historically as well. Uh, I always like to talk about um, the advertisements that started occurring in the late uh, 60s and, seven and early 70s uh, encouraging women to smoke as a, as a way uh, to express their individuality uh, Uh, I recall the Virginia Slims advertisements, uh, one type brand of uh, cigarettes. You've come a long way, baby. Uh, And you certainly have uh, uh, in terms of uh, cigarette smoking and the impact of that in terms of uh, female lung cancer death rates. Uh, At this point in time, there was a significant difference in male and female associated with uh, the general social acceptability of women smoking. Women were encouraged in advertisements to smoke as an expression of their independence, Uh, so they responded to that advertising, one would say. Uh, Their independence also led to an enhanced death rate uh, from tobacco use. Uh, So you can see an offset in terms of the peaking here because of the social stigma that was uh, released from women smoking cigarettes. There are other aspects in terms of risk factors. Uh, Several of these are associated with physical activity, Uh, routine screening exams at your physicals, uh, self-examination, and just being kind of smart about occupational exposure and personal exposure to things that may uh, damage cells, whether it be chemicals, uh, viruses, and other sorts of behaviors, uh, all things in moderation. The American Cancer Society actually recommends uh, that individuals eat five or more servings of fruit and vegetables uh, on a daily basis for cancer prevention, and this has a lot to do with what we talked about uh, during our target organ toxicity discussion of oxidative stress and the incorporation of uh, uh, especially plant-based food antioxidants in your diet. Uh, We have uh, come a long way in terms of recognizing the importance uh, of consumption, uh, but uh, we have pretty much uh, plateaued. If you look at the 1994 to 2003 uh, demographics, um, these are bar graphs of uh, trends in consumption of five or more vegetables uh, or fruits uh, for cancer prevention, and this is adults 18 years and older. Uh, the per- prevalence in terms of percent is pretty static. Uh, starting here at 24, about a quarter of the people uh, in the U.S. adults uh, actually uh, behave, so to speak, dietarily. Uh, And uh, perhaps uh, this probably is not uh, statistically significant, but it is perhaps discouraging that most recent uh, data here, 23.6%, shows about a 1% decrease uh, over some of the previous years in terms of adults that are actually consuming the recommended fruit and vegetable servings. So diet, uh, personal behaviors, uh, all of those manage uh, some of the uh, uh, initial sorts of uh, causation linkages, uh, risk factors, if you will, uh, associated with carcinogenesis. So what we've done today is a substantially ambitious uh, undertaking, uh, a dense lecture, if you will, in the amount of information. So perhaps uh, you'll have to review the notes several times, but hopefully with your advanced reading, uh, many of the terms, many of the concepts, uh, as well as your prior study of biology, has set you up for uh, an analysis of of some of the impacts of toxicology that lead to these changes, uh, some of them, heritable changes on the molecules of life. Next time what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, dioxins uh, and these related uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon compounds that exist out in the environment in the human food chain and their relationship to human toxicology. Until that time, we'll see you again. Thanks.